you to turn in your Bibles with me to Deuteronomy chapter 12. We're going to read Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 29, through all of chapter 13, all 18 verses. If you're visiting with us, we are uh, working our way section by section through the book of Deuteronomy, and we're in the middle section of the book where Moses is giving these various laws and statutes and rules to Israel as they prepare to go into the promised land. So that's the setting. And we're looking at these laws and rules because we are convinced that uh, all of the Bible is uh, God's word to us and all of the Bible gives Christ to us. And uh, we need all of the Bible to be whole Christians. And so we're working through the book of Deuteronomy uh, patiently together. With that in mind, let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 12, beginning in verse 29. Let's hear the word of the Lord. When the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations whom you go in to dispossess, and you dispossess them and dwell in their land, take care that you be not ensnared to follow them after they have been destroyed before you. And that you do not inquire about their gods, saying, How did these nations serve their gods? That I also may do the same. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, for every abominable thing that the Lord hates they have done for their gods. For they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. Everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take from it. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you. To know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice. And you shall serve him and hold fast to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death. Because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. If your brother, the son of your mother, or your son or your daughter, or the wife you embrace, Or your friend, who is as your own soul, entices you secretly, saying, Let us go and serve other gods, which neither you nor your fathers have known. Some of the gods of the peoples who are around you, whether near you you, or far off from you, from the one end of the earth to the other, you shall not yield to him or listen to him, nor shall your eye Pity him, nor shall you spare him, nor shall you conceal him, but you shall kill him. Your hand shall be first against him to put him 
to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. You shall stone him to death with stones, because he sought to draw you away from the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And all Israel shall hear and fear, and never again do any such wickedness as this among you. If you hear in one of your cities which the Lord your God is giving you to dwell there, that certain worthless fellows have gone out among you and have drawn away the inhabitants of their city, saying, Let us go and serve other gods which you've not known, then you shall inquire and make search and ask diligently, and behold, if it be true and certain that such an abomination has been done among you, you shall surely put the inhabitants of that city to the sword, devoting it to destruction, all who are in it and its cattle with the edge of the sword. You shall gather all its spoil into the midst of its open square and burn the city and all its spoil with fire as a whole burnt offering to the Lord your God. It shall be a heap forever. It shall not be built again. None of the devoted things shall stick to your hand that the Lord may turn from the fierceness of his anger and show you mercy and have compassion on you and multiply you as he swore to your fathers. If you obey the voice of the Lord your God, keeping all his commandments that I am commanding you today and doing what is right in the sight of the Lord your God. Well, one of the most repeated commands throughout the book of Deuteronomy is the command to take care, to be careful. This commandment occurs dozens of times throughout the book of Deuteronomy, and as Moses prepares Israel to enter into the promised land, he warns them again and again and again and again with disturbing regularity to take care, to be careful. The word that Moses uses most often when he's calling Israel to take care is the Hebrew word shamar. It's a very important word, not only in the book of Deuteronomy, but throughout the Old Testament. It's the same word that is used to describe the responsibility of priests serving in the tabernacle or the temple They are to shamar sacred space. They're to keep it, to be careful, even to guard it. The word shamar can mean those things. It can mean to be careful, to keep it, or to guard something. In fact, the same word appears for the first time in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. And I think we can get a handle on what this passage is all about if we remember that we're told in Genesis 2.15, how the Lord took the first man and placed him within the garden, and, and then he charged him to work it and to shamar it. To work it and to keep it, or work it and guard it. And so the call to keep or the call to guard, uh, to, to be careful, it goes all the way back to the garden. And of course, that's exactly what Adam failed to do. He failed to be careful. He failed to guard the garden. You know, when the first man saw 
the serpent slithering around his wife and speaking to her. You know what he should have done. He should have grabbed that serpent by the tail and dashed its head off the base of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He should have crushed the serpent's head. He should have slain the dragon. After all, he had every ability and resource to do so. As the image of God, Adam was created upright and he had been given authority to exercise royal dominion over every living thing that moves on the earth. But Adam did not take care. Instead, what does Genesis tell us? It says he stood by and watched. And because he listened to the voice of another, everything, everything was lost. Because he listened to another voice, everything was lost. And down to this day, we live with the consequences. Just think about all of the sin in this world. Think about all of the injustice. Think about all that's wrong with this world. It is the result of the first man failing to take care. To be on guard. And we know the story as a result Adam and Eve were exiled. They were exiled east of Eden. Expelled from the garden. They went east and as the rest of the Old Testament unfolds. This same story repeats Again and again and again. In fact, it's no exaggeration to say that the story of Adam is the story of Israel in a nutshell. The story of origins foreshadows the story of Israel. The story of Adam, who is identified in Scripture as God's son, is foreshadowing The story of Israel, who is also identified in the book of Exodus as God's son. Accordingly, Moses warns Israel to take care and to beware the seduction that awaits them in an Edenic-like paradise. And so like the Garden of Eden, Canaan is a beautiful and spacious place, but it has Dangerous inhabitants who pose an existential threat to the people of God. If they and their practices are not uprooted out of the land, then history will just repeat itself. All of that misery will repeat itself. All of that exile and alienation and death will happen all over again. And so Moses warns them that their fate will be the same as their first parents, exiled east of the Garden of Eden until until the promised son, the seed of the woman, appears in the fullness of time to crush the head of that ancient serpent, the devil. Now, undoubtedly, this passage contains hard words. No doubt, as we were reading and listening to the penalties and the warnings described in this passage, questions come to mind. It might disturb us, but, but the parts of the Bible that we are prone to dislike the most, isn't it the case that those are the passages that we often need the most? Haven't you found that to be true in your own life? 
the parts of the Bible that we are often prone to dislike the most turn out to be the passages that we need to listen to the most. Accordingly, I like us to consider this passage in two parts. First, a general warning. And then secondly, three specific warnings. Three specific uh, scenarios Moses envisions where the people of God will experience temptation uh, that they need to be on guard against, that they need to take care. All right, so first, the general warning. Uh, the general warning that's found at the end of chapter 12, uh, where Moses uses this Hebrew word shamar twice in verse uh, 30 and in verse 32. He, he's urging the Israelites to be careful. He's saying to them, you are not immune. If you commit, if you live by the same idolatry as the Canaanites, you will experience the same fate as the Canaanites. That's Moses' main point in verse 30 where he says, Take care that you be not ensnared to follow them after they have been destroyed before you. In other words, Moses is saying, you've seen where all of this goes. You've seen where all of this leads, so don't go down that road. Because if you live like the Canaanites, you will die like the Canaanites. It's Moses' message to them. But after all, it's a message that we need to hear because it is so easy for God's people in every age to presume upon the grace of God as a license to live however we please. But this way of thinking, it is, it is repeatedly warned against in both the Old and New Testaments. Listen just for one example to the Apostle Paul in Romans 2, where he addresses this problem head on. He asks, do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. The simple message of this passage, the warning of Moses to the people, is if you live like the Canaanites... You will die like the Canaanites. For us, if we live like the world around us, we can expect the very same fate of a world that is passing away. And, and that is exactly what happened to the nation of Israel, if we know the story of the Old Testament. In verse 31, Moses goes on and he singles out the practice of child sacrifice as the single most abominable practice of the inhabitants of the land. Now, I think this is particularly important for us to notice in, in our own contemporary moment. One of the things that we're, we should learn from this verse is that not all sins are equally heinous. In other words, when we are making moral judgments, we need to maintain a sense of proportion. And not make false equivalencies. Okay, that's, that's why Jesus spoke words of woe on those who, who strained a gnat while they swallowed down a camel. 
Some things really are worse than others and should be recognized and acknowledged as such with, with, a, with a corresponding sense of gravity. That's why Moses singles out the abomination of child sacrifice as a symbol of human depravity and just how far a culture can sink. They burned their own sons and daughters to worship their gods. And yet, Paul's words, who are you, O man? And yet, the kings of Israel ended up doing the very same thing. Remember these stories. uh, God's own people committed child sacrifice. It didn't happen all at once. It didn't happen as soon as they went into the land. But slowly over time, the people became so thoroughly Canaanized that they looked like Canaanites. 2 Chronicles 28 verse 2 King Ahaz made offerings in the valley of the son of Hinnon and burned his sons as an offering according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. Another example, 2 Kings 21 verse 6, King Manasseh burned his son as an offering. And I know what we're tempted to do. I know we're tempted to look at this and kind of shake our heads as modern people and think, man, how stupid, how foolish. We scoff at such a practice and we think ourselves incapable of ever doing such a thing. But friends, we should not forget that we live in a country where more than 60 million unborn babies have been sacrificed upon the altar of sexual freedom and personal choice. We have our own gods in this country, in this land, that we find ourselves in, and and we are no less depraved than the Canaanites as a people. And the fact that all of this has taken place in highly institutionalized settings that, that make all of this basically invisible, right? Where the evidence of the atrocity is simply discarded as medical waste or it's sold for the purpose of medical research does not make the reality of abortion any less violent or any less barbaric than the ancient practice of child sacrifice. If you think about it, literally children are being torn to pieces to serve the gods of freedom and choice. This is why Moses raises his voice to warn us with urgency, take care. He is preaching as a dying man. Remember, Moses is at the end of his life. This is his last sermon series to the people of Israel. And again and again he's saying to them, take care, be careful. Because he knew that the idolatrous practices of the Canaanites posed a real threat to the people of God. He knew, he knew that a little leaven leavens the whole lump, right? That bad company corrupts good character. And so he warns us to take care so that we are not ensnared by the world that is passing away, right? The Canaanites were about to be wiped out and he doesn't want God's people to be wiped away with them. So as Jesus says, whatever causes you to sin, 
It's got to be cut off. It's got to be gouged out. It's got to be thrown away. That brings us to the specific warnings that Moses provides. Specific, three specific scenarios that he wants uh, to prepare the Israelites for as they go into the land. And boy, there are many lessons applicable to us today. And I'm looking at the clock and my heart is sinking. So let's, let's do what we can here. We see in, in chapter 13, in verses 1 through 18, Moses addressing these three hypothetical situations in which the Israelites would be tempted to forsake the Lord, to turn away from the Lord to other gods. Okay, The first warning we see is against the pressure, the, 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 the pressure of a false prophet or a false teacher. Verses 1 and 5, all... Now, keep in mind, all of these cases that where we're told about these warnings, Moses is insisting that false worship must be ferociously resisted. That's what Moses is insisting on. And the first hypothetical thing that Moses presents is the temptation of a false prophet. You know, one of the things that makes this such a, a challenge is that sometimes a false prophet or a false teacher might say something that comes to pass. It might say something that seems to carry a certain degree of, of credibility, right? Sometimes a blind squirrel still finds a nut and a prophet may perform a sign or a wonder that gives their message this veneer of validation. Now, Moses was no stranger to this. Remember his experience in the land of Egypt when he confronted Pharaoh and commanded, let my people go, he found himself in a competition of signs and wonders with the magicians of Egypt. Now these signs, they, they may have been simple tricks on the part of Pharaoh's court, or they may have been demonically empowered. I, I don't know. But the thing is, they appeared to work. They seemed to be credible. They seemed like the real deal. And they helped Pharaoh to harden his heart against the word of the Lord. They helped Pharaoh to not take care. And look at where it got him. The New Testament routinely warns against false teachers that might even arise within the church. You remember Paul's farewell address to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20. He warns the elders of the church to pay careful attention. We could say to Shamar, right? To be careful. He calls Attention to the wolves who will, who will arise and speak twisted things. Right, so that's a real danger that we got to look out for. But I also think we need to recognize that many of the false prophets of our day may not even be overtly religious. This is something we can easily overlook. Those who call us to forsake the Lord may not come to us in the name of Baal. They may instead come in the name of elite cultural institutions of higher learning or politics and politicians or the entertainment industry or business corporations, all of which ask us to sacrifice allegiance to Jesus for the sake of social acceptance and socioeconomic success. It's the reality we face in our culture today. And if you think about it in that sense, those who promote these institutions and these ideas at the expense of the Christian faith are really no different 
than the false prophets who promoted the ancient fertility cults that were so prominent in the land of Canaan at the time. Because what were those gods all about? Right? They were territorial deities with limited spheres of authority and influence. And so what did you do if you were a Canaanite? Well, you hedged your bets. And you gave a little bit of your allegiance to this god and to that god and to that god to each and every territorial deity to cover all of your bases and hope things would go well for you. And frankly, that is a temptation that we face today. We're tempted to divide up our allegiances and serve this God and that God. Just think about the pressure Israel would have felt going into the land of Canaan. It would have surely been a temptation for them to look around at the land and see, well, things seem to be working. Things seem to be going pretty well here, a land flowing with milk and honey. How did you guys do it? Tell us how you worship your gods so that we can serve them too. We want to keep this up. (laughs) It would have been extremely tempting. Now, of course, there's something important we need to say. We do not live, hear me loud and clear, we do not live in a theocratic nation state like Israel did under the old covenant. Under the gospel, the church consists of people from every tribe and language and and nation and we are not given the church is not given the power of the sword and under the gospel we are not a theocratic nation state we are a theocracy we are a kingdom the kingdom of our lord jesus christ but we've not been given the power of the sword we've been given the power of the sword of the spirit which is the word of god And so this is how discipline and right judgment is to be exercised in the church today. But we need to understand this, brothers and sisters, that does not make the fight any less fierce or any less serious. Just listen to Paul's words as he is appealing to the Galatian Christians who have been led astray by false teaching. He, he comes right out of the gate and he says, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be anathema, is what Paul says. Let him be accursed. That brings us to the second scenario, the temptation of relational or family pressure. This is verses 6 through 11. The second hypothetical situation that Moses presents here is the temptation of close relationships where our affections are involved, where our hearts are given over to someone who is tempting us to turn away from the Lord. I I, I just want us all to pause for a moment and ask ourselves the question, where are your closest, closest relationships leading you? And we shouldn't neglect the flip side of that question. Where are you leading others? Are your closest relationships leading you to or away from the Lord. 
There are several examples of the person that this could be according to Moses. It could be your brother. It could be your son or your daughter. It could be your wife or your husband. The language that's used in Hebrew here, someone is the same soul as you are, your soulmate. It could be someone that you'd like to have as your wife or husband. It could be your closest friend that you have known your entire life. All of these people who are near and dear to you, who, who have the strongest attachment to you, those are the people in view here. And so the temptation in verses 6 through 11 is I think it can be summarized as the temptation of personal affection. Close, intimate ties that play on your heartstrings. Right? That, that personal affection, it represents a real threat here. So this is a different kind of temptation that often takes place under the radar over an extended period of time, sometimes over a long period of time. And that might be why Moses insists, you shall not yield to him. Don't yield. You shall not listen to him. Verse 8, and this warning against yielding speaks, I think, to the profound pressure that is exerted upon someone in this most intimate area of life. Been a pastor for a few years now, I've come to the conclusion that this is perhaps one of the most common and also one of the most painful sources of temptation that we can face because of all of the emotion, because of all of the, the deep feelings of love and attachment that we have for family and friends and the people closest to us. This, this can be a deadly source of pressure that quietly undermines our faith over time. Or if you step back for a moment and look, you, you, you see that this person you've come to know and, and love, you notice that your conversations are moving farther and farther away from the Lord until you're not talking about the Lord at all. And one day you wake up and realize that you are a walking contradiction. You know, I... Um, I know how personal this can be, so I don't want this to come across as, you know, do as the preacher says. You know, I will tell you that one of the things that has haunted me in my Christian life more than anything is the thought of spending eternity without my older brother and sister. And since they renounced the faith, that is something that haunts me daily the thought of spending eternity without them. Only brother and sister I've got, biologically speaking. There are, I can't think about my childhood apart from them. Right? There are memories that only we share. And so I, I have to, I have to fight I have to resist hard thoughts I sometimes have about God, about his, about his goodness. And I have to remember where my fundamental allegiance lies because the reality is 
there are things I could say and do to repair things. There are things that I could forsake. There are things that I could abandon to quickly get back in their good graces. But I can't do that. I can't do that because my fundamental allegiance does not belong to my family. It belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's painful. We have to, we have to learn to fight against certain feelings that may arise up within our hearts. Those hard thoughts about God. I have to say no to that. I've got to be ruthless. Saying no, I am not going to go that way. I'm going to be loyal to Jesus first because I will not compromise on that. And so I think we've got to count the cost, brothers and sisters. This is why Jesus was so honest with us about the cost of discipleship. He said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. You see, all of our natural attachments, even the love that we feel for our own children, must be subordinate to our exclusive love for Jesus, even if that means forsaking everyone else. And that is hard. That is hard. It might even feel impossible if we are in the thick of it. But one thing I want to say before we move on is to remind you that the Lord never, ever, ever calls us to give something up without giving us something even better. Again, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. So again, where are your closest relationships leading you? Are they secretly, quietly, covertly, slowly leading you away from the Lord to serve other gods. Moses' word is take care. Do not be enticed and do not be ensnared. We see the third source of temptation in verses 12 through 18 is the temptation of social pressure. And this time it's talking about an entire town that has committed apostasy. If that happens, there's got to be an investig- thorough investigation. And if it turns out to be the case, that whole town is subject to the ban. <laughs> Once again, Moses is making it clear that the covenant community is not immune to judgment simply because they are the offspring of Abraham or for any other reason. They may not presume upon the grace of God that should lead to repentance. You see, if the children of Israel live like the Canaanites, they will die like the Canaanites. If the church today lives like this passing world, we will experience the same fate. So be careful. We must remember our fundamental calling, going all the way back to the garden to take care. After all, it is no accident that in a garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus said to his disciples, watch 
and pray. This really hit me last week in my studies that he used that language. And we know how it went. Watch and pray. Jesus walks away and they're fast asleep. And the only one standing fast, the only one clinging to the Lord is the Lord himself. Jesus Christ incarnate. Watch and pray so that you do not fall into temptation. And and notice as well, it's not an accident that in the Gospel of John, I wonder if you've ever noticed this, that the passion of Jesus, his death, his burial, and his resurrection, all of it occurs within a garden. Jesus enters into a garden in John chapter 18, and he doesn't come out of a garden until he gets back up again. So his, his suffering, his death, and then his burial and resurrection all happen within the context of a garden in John's gospel. And isn't it something that when Mary Magdalene comes to the tomb, the empty tomb, and she's weeping, Jesus comes to her and asks her, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And then John gives you this little detail that you could just totally miss. She mistook him for the gardener. Now, John doesn't waste words, does he? Why is he saying that? What is he communicating to us? Remember this story in the context of the scriptures that we've looked at today. Adam did not take care in a garden and he went into exile. Israel did not take care in a land flowing with milk and honey and went east into exile to Babylon. But Jesus, the faithful gardener, we might say, sweat drops of blood, enduring the fiercest temptations imaginable. And he took care. He proved faithful. And he laid down his life. He received a crown of thorns to put a crown of jewels upon our heads. He took the covenant curse so that we could be brought home out of exile and live forever in the land of the living. You see, the story of Adam in Genesis 1 through 3, it is the story of Israel in a nutshell, and the good news is that like in Genesis 3, the book of Deuteronomy does not end with the fall and the fail, failure of God's people. But like Genesis 3.15, it looks forward to the promised hope of the seed of the woman who will succeed where Adam and Israel failed. After all, I want you to just hear Moses' last words. You ever wonder, what were the last words of this dying prophet to the people of God? Here they are. Happy are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord. The shield of your help and the sword of your triumph, your enemies shall come fawning to you and you shall tread upon your backs. And brothers and sisters, this is why we can sing, did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side. Striving would be losing. You ask who that may be, Christ Jesus, it is he, Lord Sabaoth, his name, 
from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. So brothers and sisters, let goods and kindred go. Sign your allegiance away to Jesus, because he tells us that anyone who seeks the things of this world before him will lose everything. But anyone who seeks him and his kingdom first, to them everything will be added. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, your word. And we thank you that it has proven once again to be to us a word of life. A word that brings us to the Lord Jesus Christ, your faithful son. And I pray that each and every one of us this morning would trust in him alone for salvation so that we might know the wonderful promise that, Lord, you are our life and you are our salvation for any, any who put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.